Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two great guests this week and two conversations I really, really thought were good. Adam Schefter is first up. He's, of course, the longtime ESPN NFL insider. But for the purposes of this podcast, I talked to him about his new book, The Man I Never Met, A Memoir. That book goes on sale September 4th, and it is a book about grief and hope. Adam Schefter, for those of you who don't know, married Sherry Schefter, whose first husband, Joe Mayo, died on 9-11 in the World Trade Center. And the book is about Joe Mayo's life before Adam Schefter entered the life of Sherry Schefter and her son. So a lot of personal stuff about Adam Schefter that you've never heard before. And we discuss the book and maybe a little bit about how the book was uh, cathartic for Adam to write. After that is Chinea Ogumake, the all-star forward in the WNBA. She's really interesting in that she, at the same time of playing professional basketball at the highest level, is also working as a broadcaster at ESPN. Started out at the Pac-12 network, eventually made her way to ESPN, was a Sports Center host of ESPN Africa. Not, not an analyst, a host, which is pretty impressive. And Chinea also talks about a lot of the shit that NBA, the WNBA players have to take online. Really thoughtful, smart athlete, which generally speaking, they all are from Stanford. And that was a great conversation as well. So Adam Schefter, Chinay Ogumake, now coming up on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Adam Schefter is an ESPN NFL insider. He has been a guest on my previous podcast at Sports Illustrated. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who he is. For the purposes of this conversation, though, we will be talking about Adam Schefter, the author. And he has a new book coming out on September 4th. That is The Man I Never Met, a memoir. And it is a book about grief and about hope and uh, a different side of Adam Schefter than most of you know from watching him on television. And Adam Schefter joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, thank you for that introduction. And that is very well said, grief and hope. Because I've been asked a few times already to describe the book, and there are many ways that I can say it. It's heartbreaking and heartwarming. It's a tribute to my wife's late husband, Joe Mayo. It's a testament to my wife's strength and fortitude at that point in her life. But grief and hope is a great way of describing it. That's that's very well said, and I, I appreciate your point. That. I'm going to steal that and use that again. Uh, Adam... You know, I'm trying to sort of figure out where to start because I, I want to ask you why you decided to write the book. But I think before we get into that, it's just worth letting people know just a quick background that Joe Mayo died on 9-11 and he was married to your current wife, Sherry. You have never met, obviously you never met Joe Mayo. He was part of your wife's life before you were part of your wife's life. But yet you now live in his house. Um, Joe Mayo's son is essentially you have you have raised Joe Mayo's son. And it's again, it's a kind of an amazing story about just how you two met, how Sherry got to the point where she could get married again, and just maybe some of the coincidences between you and Joe. So that, that's just a quick synopsis, probably not the greatest one, but why did you, my first question would be, why did you decide to write this? Because you are revealing a lot of personal things that most sports broadcasters probably never reveal in their lives. Well, I mean, I'll say this, Richard, the whole thing has sort of surprised me. And it wasn't like there was some plan ever to go do a TV piece for ESPN 
which would then turn into a book, which will bring on the reaction that it does and include confessions from me and other interesting anecdotes. I think, again, this whole thing was really accidental and unplanned. And the way it started was right around, I don't, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, my wife, Sherry, said to me at one point, and I should, should say that she's an intensely private person. She said, so much of what you do is so public. Why do you never mention that you're married to a 9-11 widow? And I said, well, I thought that that's something that you wanted to kind of shield and keep quiet and not really discuss. And she said, no, I, 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 I wouldn't mind if we could, you know, remember Joe's, remember Joe and honor his memory. And I, I listen, the least I could do. I mean, his, his life is meshed with my life. And so I think we did it in a tweet and I pitched it to ESPN at the time, like, Hey, for the 10th anniversary of 9-11, if you're interested in me doing a piece on Joe Mayo, let me know. And they, they weren't interested. And then I pitched the idea of doing a story on Joe again for the 15th anniversary of 9-11, which happened to be on the opening Sunday of the 2016 NFL season. And they told me at that point, no, they were not interested. And I said, no problem. But then it was very odd. A couple of months before the season opened, Greg Jewell, a great producer at ESPN, called me. And he said, I think we're going to do that piece on Joe. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, great. Okay. Now, Richard, I really didn't know what the piece would be and how it would come out and if it would be done tactfully and tastefully. And the balancing act that I guess we Joe, I, I really did not want to be a part of that piece. It was supposed to be about Joe. And so we put it together. I remember writing tracks. Uh, I was flying home from somewhere because I, I wrote a bunch of things about him. And I gave all the lines to the producer, Dominique Collins, and, and we came up with the piece that we did, which had probably a little bit more of me than I would have liked, and, and we tried to trim it down, but that was what was relevant. The piece ran on the opening Sunday of the NFL season in 2016, and you and I, I believe, have communicated about this, but I, I was completely blown away by the reaction to it. Because I've been in the business now for 28 years, and I've never, ever done anything that ever elicited that type of reaction. As soon as the piece ran, there were texts and emails pouring in from people that I didn't know, had never communicated with, never heard. Bob Iger, the head of Disney, is emailing me. People from the White House emailing me. People in the entertainment world, sports world. I'm like, wow. And the piece, for those who haven't seen it, they could Google Adam Schefter 9-11 tribute and watch the piece. The piece, I, I think, really um, resonated with people who saw it for whatever reason. And so, again, the piece was an idea that stemmed from Shari initially wanting to help honor Joe. It was the least I could do. Obviously, I wanted to pay tribute to my wife, give our son another way to remember his dad. And when the piece ran and generated the reaction it did, and those emails and texts kept coming for I swear to you, three, four days, hundreds, hundreds. Uh, there were some people that said, hey, we should turn this into a book. I'm like, a book? Really? You think a book? And they said, yeah. I'm like, I don't know what we'd do with that book, but let's give it a shot. So we met with some publishers. We actually had a deal with a publisher uh, that, that 
that's kind of a funny story too. They they got into a deal with us to uh, put out the book, and then the deal was that we would not shop it to other publishers. We had we we had a verbal agreement, and then a month after they backed out of the verbal agreement, and so we had to move on, scramble, find another publisher. We found St. Martin's Press, which was very uh, nice and uh, hospitable to take us on. And honestly, I really didn't know what form the book would take. Now, we, I, I, there were two writers I was thinking of working with. Uh, one was J.R. Moringer, who wrote The Tender Bar, the New York Times bestseller, Andre Agassi's book. He wrote Bill Knight's, Phil Knight's book, um, Shoe Dog. And J.R. Moringer was a neighbor of mine in Denver. We worked for the Rocky Mountain News at the same time. We both got rejected from covering the Colorado Rockies at the same time by the Rocky Mountain News. And we also were single in Denver together and would go on some double dates back in the day. And I asked J.R., but J.R.'s had so much literary success that he wasn't interested. Um, the other writer that we really loved was Michael Rosenberg. And Michael is a guy that writes for Sports Illustrated. He went to Michigan. He lives in Ann Arbor. He wrote for the Michigan Daily like I did. That's where we both started our newspaper careers. And honestly, it couldn't have worked out better because Michael had the perfect temperament for this book. I am high, strong, and intense, and when are we going to get to this? And things that have to get done now, I, I, I mean, we've got to get them done right away. And Michael is just, he's just very laid back and very easygoing. And that was perfect for this because we didn't know what this book would be. And what Michael and I kept engaging in was not dissimilar to putting together the TV piece. He wanted more of me, and I wanted less of me. And I wanted all Joe, and he wanted a little bit of me. And that was the tug of war that we kept fighting. We ended up where we did, and the book came out. And <laughs> um, it's funny, the other day, Rich Eisen's wife, and I went to college with Rich Eisen. For anyone who doesn't know, we worked for the Mich on Michigan Daily also together. His wife, Susie Schuster, called me, and she she uh, is reading the book and is halfway through the book, probably finished by now, but she called me up and I picked up the phone. I haven't spoken to her in a few years. And she goes, first thing, I answer the phone. Hi, Susie. And she goes, you know this is a movie, right? And I said, no, I don't know this is a movie. She said, oh, this is a movie. I'm like, okay, well, again, this whole thing has sort of surprised me, Richard. So, uh, again, I didn't know that it would be a TV piece, and it was. I didn't know that it would be a book, and it was. And... The TV piece for the reaction it generated, that was a six-and-a-half-minute piece, and this is a 200-or-so-page book. So it's really an expanded, much more personal, much more detailed version, as I know you know, having read the book. Adam, um, in terms of process, how did you go about writing it with Michael Rosenberg? Did, would you write a chapter? He writes a chapter. Would, you, would he interview you, and then he puts it into prose? Maybe you take a look at it, edit that prose. How, what was literally, like, I think, the writers who are listening to this would be interested in how you make that process work. It's a collaborative process. It's funny, Richard, because I, I had written four books of my own and been on the, basically the writing side of things, writing books for Mike Shanahan, Bill Romanowski, Terrell Davis, uh, did a Hall of Fame book on my own. And I would write for them and they would go over things and, and they, they didn't have any writerly role. They would just kind of sign off or say, I'd like this or that. In this particular case, the first thing that was incredibly helpful was the producer for ESPN, Dominique, did a three- or four-hour interview with my wife for the TV piece. And she had all the notes. She had the entire transcript. So the first thing I did, so that my wife would not have to relive it, because it's hard for her to go back. Like, it takes a lot to get her to sit down, to 
muster the strength and courage to relive the darkest days of her life. So the first thing we were able to do is I was able to get Michael uh, this full transcript. So he had an understanding of everything that Sherry went through and what she felt. The other thing was is I've kept a journal every day of my life since 1990. And so it's all written out. So I gave, I mean, there aren't many people that, that probably do that. I'm a little bit obsessive about it. There's not a day that's missing in 28 years going back to 1990. I mean, you could ask me what I was doing on October 6th of 1996. I could go back, open it up and recount the whole day for you. And so I was able to give Michael all those notes and say, here we go. And Sherry and I spoke to Michael. He came to our house for uh, a couple of days a year ago last May, so May of 2017. We spent the day, dinner, the whole thing, talked, sat down with Sherry, spoke to her for a few hours more, spoke to me a few hours more. And he just started writing up some notes. And he would send me the notes. And I would be like, no, this doesn't work. That's not right. Like, he sent me initially, I remember because I was at, John Gruden's office in Tampa last summer filming a Dunkin' Donuts commercial with him and I was going over things in between breaks with him because he sent me like 5,000 words that he had written up and it was about my dating life in Denver and he made me sound so desperate and I said, Michael, this is not the right tone. It's just, it's not right. Not that I wasn't desperate. Of course I was, but it just, it was not, it was not, you know it. It's like hitting a golf ball. When you hit a golf ball pure, it just feels right. And when we read this, it was not right. So I had to go back over, write up different things, send it back to him. And then he would say, okay, I got it. And I think it was a lot like a big jigsaw puzzle that Michael and I had to put together. I basically gave him my journal, Sherry's transcripts. He sat down with us. He would start writing. He would send me stuff. And then a lot of times I would add on, add on a bunch of details, uh, rework a couple of things. Um, but I guess he was the original drawer upper, for lack of a better phrase. And then I could add on, change things. And, and I was active in that regard because I wanted the tone to be right. And the tone was very important here. It was very, very important to strike the absolute right tone here out of respect to the Mayo family, um, how everybody felt and feels about Joe and Devin and our family. And so, yeah, it did get very personal at times. But, you know, initially, like, we wrote up one of the drafts, and my wife's like, hey, you didn't mention your first marriage in here. And, and it wasn't like it was planned. Just, just sort of putting it together. And I'm like, yeah. She goes, you have to mention your first wife. I'm like, okay. So I wrote up a bunch of things. And this is what would happen sometimes. Michael would be like, hey, can you write up for me why you keep a journal? And I did, and I would send it to him, and he would kind of work it in. Can you write up some passages about your first marriage? And I did, and I would send it to him. And I think that sort of describes the process, if that helps you enlighten you as to how we put this whole thing together. It does, and I think there's a couple things there that um, I think people will be really surprised by. One, obviously, the fact that you keep a, you've kept a journal for that long, and you've been obsessively compiling that every day. I'm sure very few people know that, and you do mention that, I think, in the book. And the other thing is, and the, one of the things that, um, and this really just struck me, and you you hit on it, you are really 
uh, in the book honest with stuff that I think certainly NFL viewers don't know about you from the failure of your first marriage, which you take responsibility for and take responsibility for in the book to your, what I would call an obsession to finding the perfect relationship as you were in your late thirties, heading to forties to, you know, your own, I think feeling of at times hopelessness that it was not going to happen for you in terms of after your first marriage and that you might have to just live a life of a single person obsessed by their job. How did you come to the point, Adam, where you were willing to share that kind of stuff with the public? I honestly didn't know we were going to go there, Richard, when we started the book. How about that? I mean, and it wasn't like when we did the book, I'm like, oh, I'm, we're going to talk about, you know, my first marriage. and We're going to talk about how lonely I was and how anxious and helpless I felt. Like, I didn't know that we were going there. And even now that we have, my question all along is, are, are people going to be interested in this? And, and I think on its own, they probably wouldn't be. But I think when you mix it all together... Joe's story, with Sherry's story, with the Mayo family story, with some of my story, all together, this big giant jigsaw puzzle. I, I, I want to think that it worked. And again, that'll be up to people to decide. So it wasn't like we set out to do that. But again, that was, I think that was Michael pushing me to be like that. And there were some people that read the book over the last month or two. And... <laughs> It was fascinating to see what people took out of it. And, and really, a lot of different people took a lot of different things. But one of my bosses that I work with at ESPN, Mike Cambrari, uh, sent me a text. And he goes, wow, you really peeled back the onion. And I guess I did. I mean, again, it wasn't planned. It wasn't like I was trying to hide something. But look, if we're going to be honest about Joe's life, and the life of the Mayos and Sherry's life, then why am I not going to be honest here too? And so that's sort of how it came to be. And maybe people will be surprised. Again, I, I do think that there's a perception out there that I'm just sort of some sort of information robot that, that I, I don't sleep much and just continue to uh, get charged up and then report on NFL news. But, you know, all of us, you know, we all, we all live a life. We all deal with things and, you know, as my wife has said, and other people say, everybody's got something. Everybody's got something. And so, um, so those were some of my things at those points in my life. Adam, uh, I imagine your wife and your kids have read the book. What, were the rea- what, were their, what, was, what has been their reaction to the book? Well, it's funny you should ask that, Richard. My daughter is nine. We were driving to the city. I was taking her to see Mean Girls on Broadway in June. And I happened to have a couple of unedited copies in the car that I was going to give to a couple of friends that we were going to the show with that day. And I, and my daughter picked it up. She's nine years old, going to be 10 in October. And she read the first chapter and she, she loved it. She wanted to keep reading. She has not yet gone to chapter two and beyond. My son, our son, uh, picked up the book. It was a few months ago. He's, he's 18 years old and he has never outwardly been very curious about that day or the events surrounding it. I know that deep down inside he has to be, and one day he will be, and one day we will talk about it. But that's not where he is today. And, you know, I can't pretend to know what it's like for him. I don't. I won't ever. But if there's anything I could ever do to support him, I, I'm, you know, I would be honored and would love to do that. So he picked up an unedited version and kind of like skimmed it, the way an 18-year-old would. 
And, and maybe he would want to know more, but I, I think sometimes he, he doesn't want to go there. He doesn't allow himself to go there. And my wife, she read that initial 5,000-word missive that Michael had sent to me and didn't really care for that. And I didn't care for it either initially. And that was basically all she read because at that point in time, she, she didn't care for that. And she doesn't like to go relive her darkest days. So in the back of my mind, I got to be honest with you and say I was very uneasy knowing that this book is now done. We're going through the editing process. I keep saying to my wife, you want to read it? You want to read it? Here it is. Here's She's never read it. She does things on her time schedule when she's ready, when she wants. I'm never going to force her to do anything. And about two weeks ago, two weeks ago, she just started reading it. Like I walked in to the den, she's reading it. I'm like, wow. Well, you know, do you like it? She goes, it's good. It's very good. And I said, great. And um, there were some things that we discussed in there. She finished the book, had the same reaction. And actually, at the end of the book, to be honest with you, she was very emotional. And she she began to cry that she feels so bad for the Mayos and so bad for Devin. And these are the kind of things that, that basically are, they're our life. Like, that's the way we live. Like, they come up whenever they do, unpredictable times. And if you really think about it, it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. There's no other way to say it. And, uh, um, she was crying, uh, and I'm very emotional about it. And, you know, in a way, the, my, my hope was, okay, well, then maybe we have, uh, depicted things the way that they should be and are. And, what a heavy burden this is to live with for the Mayo family and for Shari and to a much lesser extent, Devin, who deals with it in his own quiet, subdued way. Adam, um, you you live in Joe Mayo's house, correct? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, the house still, he yeah. bought? Okay. Um, and obviously you're married to his wife. Yeah. What would you say to Joe Mayo if you could get a couple hours with him? What <laughs> would you want to talk about? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, wow. I, I, I guess we probably would, uh, it would, it would be all about Sherry and Devin and his family, you know, that, that, that's become like my in-laws, another set of in-laws because, you know, I, am living in his world to a certain extent. I get to have my own life, of course, but like you said, it is his house, it is his wife, it is his son. And you know, the things that I've had to deal with, good and bad. <laughs> I know he had to deal with good and bad. And the challenges and, um, you know, honestly, th- th- there'd be so much to talk about. And in a way, I also think that I'd just like to go out and play golf with the guy and hang out and have like a guy's day on the golf course. So I, I, I don't know what I'd say. Like, I've never thought about that. It's very interesting, but I would want him to know that I have done my best to look after his family and do the best job that I could. I appreciate uh, you answering that. One more on the book, and then I want to end with um, some quick NFL stuff. Um, You're going to obviously do publicity for this book, Adam. Um, I mean, maybe this sort of not a a ton, Richard. Well, so here's where I'm sort of getting at. Would um, is your how do I start? It, it, does Sherry have any interest in 
appearing with you at all to talk about this book, or ultimately will will you be the person who discusses the book, which is, of course, her life as well as yours? Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I, I would defer to her on everything. Like, we got a call from somebody from the publisher that that the View initially was interested in having her and I on. And I went to her and she said, I said, what are you doing? She said, yeah, I guess. And, and like I said, she's a very private person. So it's not something that she is looking to do. So I think on the right day, asked the right way, I think she would do things. Uh, the only request we've gotten so far was The View. And, and, and it didn't work out for whatever reason. I don't think they were interested at this time. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. I know that on Labor Day... I'm supposed to be doing Good Morning America. Uh, Shari is more than welcome to go, and if she wants to be on, uh, I, 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 they haven't asked for her, but you know, I'm, I don't think they say no. Uh, I know that I did a feature with Newsday, and they want to take a couple of pictures of me, and I brought my wife and my daughter with me to the photo, and they wound up taking pictures of Shari and Dylan as well. So. There's no plan for any of this, and and I know that you talk about the publicity. Look, to me, like I said, this is Joe's book and Sherry's book and the Mayo's book, and if somebody wants them, uh, I'll I'll certainly ask them if they're interested, and and I think that they might be, or they might not be. I don't know. And if not, then I will do the best job I can to represent them all. And But again, the book comes out at the start of football season, and so... I know that a lot of authors would go out and go on a book tour, and, and that would be great if you could do that. But honestly, I've got to worry about the Eagles and the Falcons that Thursday, opening Sunday that Sunday, got to be in Bristol a bunch of times. And so I, I don't even know what kind of publicity the book will or won't get. I really don't. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't concern me, to be honest with you. Like, if it gets some, great. If it doesn't, that's fine, too. Last one for me on this, and that is um – when I was at Sports Illustrated uh, in my last uh, basically two years there, I think, or a year and a half, we our offices were across the street from Freedom Tower, from where the former site of the World Trade Center is and where now there is a memorial for the 9-11 victims. I know in the book you said that Sherry has never gone to that site and, and may never. It's going to take some time for her to get there. I think you said your son has not as well. Have you been to um, the 9-11 site, Adam? And if you were, what was that journey like for you? I was there. I had a charity event one night that was right by there. And I did a quick tour before going into the event. And I remember looking for Joe's name but I didn't get to spend the time that you would ordinarily spend there. I was rushed along. And so I, I did it, but I haven't done it the way you would like to do it if I were going to do it. And Sherry still has not been, and I would imagine she'll ne- she never will, to be perfectly frank. And Devin hasn't been, and I would imagine he will at some point, but I couldn't tell you whether that's going to be a year from now five years from now or 20 years from now. I don't know. And it, again, to, to my wife, it, it's a trip back to relive a period of her life that, that she doesn't like to go back to. And 
I know the Mayo family, they've been, because I think that they wanted to take Devin, and for whatever reason, if my memory serves me correctly, it didn't work out. Um, and, you know, it for them, I feel horrible, the Mayo family. I mean, they, they really, uh, you know, you, you lose your spouse that day, you never forget it, and it scars you, and Sherry's talked about that. It, it takes a piece of you that you never get back. And and Devin never will know his biological father. But if you're a parent and you lose a child that day, I, I I don't think there's any moving on from that ever, ever. I think that's I think that's the single worst thing that could happen that day. And again, we're just talking about series of bad because they're all horrible. But, I mean, you read the book, so you know the Mayo story. I don't have to give away anything. No, nobody's had to endure any more than that family. And they have my undying respect for the way that they've handled everything. Um, and to me, uh, you know, that day and those events will always pain them more than anybody else. And again, I don't know, I don't know how you quantify a day like that that basically ruined my life, my wife's life, and ruined my son's life without him even knowing. But it really ruined the Mayo's life. Yeah, you, uh, it's hard. I don't know, I sort of phrase this. If, you're, if you are living in New York or if you're in New York, even 17 years later, you always feel. 9-11, and then when you walk by that place, which I basically had to do every day for two years, I walk through that plaza, and you see the sheer number of names on that um, over by the fountains, and then you think of all the lives that are connected to those names, you, you're, you can't even wrap your mind around it. You cannot wrap your mind around how many people were impacted by September 11th, 2001, not to mention, obviously, the whole country. Um, who watched that? So I appreciate Adam you being well, um, Richard to that you know, to that point. Are, if I can interrupt for a moment, yeah. I want to emphasize this. Like, and, and we wrote this in the book, and it's true. And I wrote it in the TV piece when we did it. There are that day thousands of absolutely heartbreaking stories, thousands, and this is ours, right? So it, it, it ours is unique, but so is everybody else's. And we're not any different than any of the people that lost a father or a husband or a brother or a sister or a wife or a child. The, 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 and that's why it's the most calamitous day of our lifetime. I, I couldn't even imagine, wouldn't want to imagine living through anything worse than that. And again, there, there are so many sad stories of grief to steal your word from the beginning from that day and this particular story as i'm sure other stories do as well contains a little hope too but the grief is the overriding emotion beyond anything else and that is the case for everybody who was touched in a personal way that day a personal way the day touched everybody affected everybody but it affected 3000 plus people and then some way more
Well, this will not be the easiest segue, but um, I, I do want to finish up with a couple NFL questions. And yeah. Again, I appreciate your honesty about um, about what is inside that book. And again, that's the man I never met. A memoir. I, I definitely recommend it. It um, it, it was a uh, it was really well done. Well done to my old colleague Michael Rosenberg in terms of the writing and uh, and a book that you'll be able to get through pretty quick, but an important one. Um, Adam, I want to finish up with this. Um, and I, I just I, I, I want to ask it sort of open ended and you can take it any way you want. But the ESPN, your employer, is making it very clear that they they have embarked in a reset of their relationship with the NFL, which at times um, certainly had been acrimonious. The question for you I have is, and maybe the answer is not at all, but how does ESPN's reset of this relationship impact you? Zero. I mean, no, nobody has said to me. We want you doing nicer stories in the NFL. We want you doing less stories on concussions. We want you doing more of this or zero. And, and I mean that. And I've heard this. And I, I just think, and, and we'll see how it filters down. I think more than anything, it's, it's just Jimmy Pitaro, our new boss, who's a great boss, kind of sitting down with league officials and, 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 you know, it, it's like any relationship that's in disrepair or, 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 or not going the way people want it to be or however you want to categorize this relationship. If there's an issue there and, and, it, and it matters to both sides, they sit down and they work on it in whatever way. I, I don't know what's taking place in those conversations. I don't ask. I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't really concern me. Uh, I, I just know that they're having conversations. They have not filtered down to me in any way. I don't know that they will or they won't. And to date, though, my job has been my job and just continues to be my job, unaffected, uninterrupted. This is pretty hard for you, Adam, because you cover the entire league. But at the moment, what do you consider the most interesting story in the NFL? Well, probably the tackling helmet rule and how the league is trying to enforce this and take the head out of the game and make so that people are using the helmet for protection and not as a weapon. Now, th- that's the issue today, Richard, when we talk about it. You know, for all we know, next week, it could turn to something entirely different. You know, it, it, it could, and it could change on a dime like that. You know, for all we know, it could be turn into domestic violence. It could turn into concussions. It could turn into uh, w- whatever it may be. We, we just don't know. Like, the, the league moves quick. Things change quick. But today, if I'm answering that question, I would say it's the way the tackling rule has been enforced and I guess you bring up the national anthem, but we'll see how that one plays out too. Adam, are there teams that are more transparent or more forthcoming when it comes to information? And if so, can you share publicly what those teams are? Well, you know, I, I think everybody's different. I think the NFL, by and large, is just a very protective, paranoid league. And, and I think that's where, again, it comes back to relationships, right? There, there are organizations that are very, very private but if, if you talk to people there, I mean, you, you learn things. And there are people and there are organizations that are more helpful and cooperative and probably in smaller media markets. But even there, they're very careful. But again, if you know people anywhere, whether it's you know, in Seattle or Jacksonville, it doesn't matter where. Um, I, I think you know, you know, Mort has done this so long. He knows everybody. I've done this for 28 years. So uh, you, you're dealing... 
in these relationships and counting on these relationships to give you additional insight, no matter how private and paranoid an organization may actually be. Yeah, are the Patriots, uh, in terms of sort of dealing with them in your position, are they as private as the public's, the NFL public thinks they are? Or is that, has that been a misnomer, at least for you as a national reporter? I, I think people, everybody knows that, you know, that, that they're very, they, let, they do things their way. They do things their way. Every team does things their way. And, and it's worked for them, the way they handle things. Um, they keep things tight to the vest. Uh, and, and again, my job is, is to try to talk to people and get information, period. So I, I understand what they're, they're, what they're doing is not any different than what a lot of teams are doing. It's just, uh, it, it's a little bit more public. There's a little bit more fascination. Um, there's great curiosity and intrigue the way that the head coach does his press conferences, um, which I, I think they've turned into great entertainment over the years, to be honest with you, the way they're done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, final two. Um, off the top of your head, which players in the league do you think will work in the media one day? Well, it sounds like Jalen Ramsey's got a job uh, waiting for him at ESPN whenever he wants. <laughs> be my first guess. And I think you always look at the quarterbacks, you know. Um, so to me, any of the quarterbacks, line them up, and, and, and then you figure out which one's would be good and which one would not be good. Look, Fox last year hired Jay Cutler, and I think Jay would have been great on TV. I thought he would have been tremendous, and he didn't follow through on that. You could look at a lot of quarterbacks and usually go in that direction, and, and, and then Jalen Ramsey, of course, stands out, and he's already making his name for himself early in his career when he's in Jacksonville, that market, which is not a big market. So that, 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 those would be some people, the quarterbacks and Jalen Ramsey, that just jumped to my thinking right away. <laughs> I like the Jalen Ramsey answer. Uh, and finally, you, the NBA has always been a long term or a long time, I should say, passion of yours. Yeah. We've talked about this before, both uh, publicly as well as privately. You follow the league. It's kind of always been like one of the fun things that you've done. And then you were able to take this and actually turn it into a couple of assignments yeah. on the sidelines last year for ESPN. At this point, is there um, like, do you, will you be doing that again? Have you talked to any of ESPN's NBA producers? Is that something you hope to do? It's funny you should say that. I had an NBA head coach text me the other night, Richard, two nights ago. Okay, and and I'm going to text. I'm going to read you the exact text. I'm not going to say the coach. Um, but the NBA coach texted me out of nowhere Tuesday, ten seventeen. What a waste putting a talent like you on the NFL. Come to the NBA and raise our level even more. <laughs> that was a text from an NBA head coach, and uh, I said one day. Maybe after, my, after this current contract, if Woj will have me. That was how I responded to him. And, you know, listen, I love doing it. And to me, it's great. And, and I hope I get to do it more. And, yeah, if, if I didn't have a wife and two kids and I were back in the single days of, that I talked about in the book, I, I would do even more of it. I would, go for, I would go right from football right to basketball full-time as a sideline person, uh, reporter. I would love to do that. It's just to me, it's great entertainment. I love, I love doing it. It just brings me into a world that I don't ordinarily get to. You don't feel this overwhelming sense of responsibility for everything that happens the way you do with football. And, and like I've said to many, it's like, my, it's like my professional vacation. It just feels like, wow, I'll let Woj worry about who's getting fired and hired. I'm just going to watch this game, talk about who's doing well, who's not, do the sideline interviews with the coach, 
would always love to do pop. Think that would be kind of fun if I ever got a Spurs game. Haven't gotten one yet. I just think that, you know, that's kind of cool. Like I did a, my first game last year was the Cavaliers and the Pelicans in Cleveland Friday night, March 30th. You know, so LeBron, he does a double take. He's like, do you get lost or something? What are you doing here? And I said, I came to see you, you know. And it's just, to me, that's just fun, Richard. It's fun. And not that what I do isn't fun. I love what I do. But I've also done it for 28 years. So to take in some fresh air in the NBA arenas and NBA world and go work with Doris Burke and Mike Breen and, and, and Jeff Van Gundy and all these people like that, that's that's awesome. Like I love it's just fun. It's fun to see how the other half lives, to see how they do their jobs, to interact with other people, and to be in a situation where you're not being a pain in the ass to people, <laughs> but you're just there to do your job for the night. Yeah, it's a great league too. It's fun and the stars are great. So I can totally understand that. Adam Schefter, of course, is a, a longtime ESPN NFL insider and the author of With Michael Rosenberg, The Man I Never Met, a memoir that book goes on sale September fourth a book about grief and hope. Adam, uh, thanks again for doing this, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best of uh, success with the book. Richard, I, I always appreciate me. I know that when I sit down and, and, and we're going to talk, I know it's going to be a little bit thoughtful, and again, you did not disappoint in that regard, so I thank you for that, and best of luck to you and everyone listening. You got it. Thanks, Adam. Adam Schefter. All right, and now we bring in Chineo Gumake. She is a all-star forward. For the Connecticut Sun of the WNBA, former number one overall pick out of Stanford, uh, as someone who's covered women's basketball for 18 years, one of the better women's college basketball players I'd seen. Endless amounts of energy, Chineo Gumake and her sister. Uh, they never s- essentially seem to get tired on the court. And now she is a, um, she is a multi-platform ESPN commentator in addition to her professional basketball job. And Chine Ogumake joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Chine, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be joining you all. All right, Chine, here's where I want to start. Are you a basketball player who also works in broadcasting, or are you a broadcaster who also works in basketball? <laughs> well, unfortunately, my text would say I'm a broadcaster that works in basketball. But my heart says that I'm a basketball player that works in broadcasting. So, yeah, I always consider myself, you know, a basketball player first and foremost. I've been playing it more than I've been doing anything else in my life. And um, obviously broadcasting is great. It's an awesome um, another thing that I've picked up uh, as my basketball career has, you know, blossomed. But for sure, I'm definitely a hooper at heart. All right, Janae, I want to get into how how you eventually landed with a multi-year ESPN contract. You're playing at Stanford. You're drafted by the WNBA. So you enter that league. Obviously, you're a very high-round draft pick, so you also have the ability to play overseas, which I know you did. So at one point in your basketball career, does the interest or, um, or the opportunity come when you start dabbling in broadcasting? Oh, man, it honestly happened um, so organically, but I didn't even plan it. So I would actually go back to Stanford University when I was around a sophomore. And um, I honestly was an international relations major. Didn't know I was going to go in and study international relations, but I come from an international family, Nigerian-American family. 
first generation, born and raised in the U.S., my sisters and I, my three sisters and I. So going into Stanford, you know, uh, as a student athlete, we're often told that you, you can have it all, but no one really feels like it. The first person that I really listened to that told me, Janae, you can go as hard as you can off the court as you do on the court um, was actually my international relations advisor, Dr. Condoleezza Rice. Huge sports fan, awesome supporter of women's basketball. She sort of, um, you know, it's funny, on my official visit, you meet a lot of great professors, and she was there. And I met her, and I was like, okay, that was my one-hit wonder, meeting one of the legendary professors at Stanford. And then she came to a game and, and sought me out, said, hey, I heard you're interested in politics and world affairs and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you still know my name. So I met with her, and she became my advisor, and she basically broke it down to me and told me, Sinead, Stanford is such a rich place, and I know you're so focused on your basketball career, and then you give whatever is left to your uh, you know, academics, but you should be just as bold, just as, as aggressive, you know, off the court. So that sort of recalibrated my mind. So when I was at Stanford, I really started to find different ways for me to share my voice. And I didn't know what the platform was going to be, but one of the earliest platforms for me was actually writing a blog for ESPNW throughout my career. So I built a relationship with ESPN when I was a student athlete at Stanford, not knowing, it was just me just sharing you know, trying to redefine nerd because people looked at Stanford. This was the Andrew Luck era. Um, you know, there's a girl named Ashley Hansen who was a top softball player. My sister was the number one pick in, in the draft in 2012. It was a huge year. We had Richard Sherman too. Like Stanford athletics was booming. Um, and for me, it was finding a way to redefine what people considered with Stanford was a nerd. So I started sharing my voice, writing blogs, you know, stuff that wouldn't take away too much of my time. So when I get drafted to Connecticut, um, I was a rookie, obviously. So I got drafted number one, which was really, I was, it was a really cool experience. Now the draft was hosted at Mohegan Sun Arena, which is the home court of where the number one draft pick was held. So the Connecticut Sun had the number one pick at Mohegan Sun. It was like a dream come true for me. My sister was there. She was previously drafted number one. So it was awesome. Like it, it, you can't even, you know, script it any better than that. And the next day I had a ESPN car wash. You know, a lot of people go through, you know, uh, your top player, let's, you know, go on some shows. So I went on a couple of shows and built a couple of relationships with people there just saying, hey, I'm in your backyard. If you ever need me, just let me know. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a hooper, ball is life. <laughs> so um, I played my first rookie season and it was great. But then I, most people are starting to understand because it's been a hot topic that we also play overseas. So after my rookie season, I go to Schio, Italy in the northern Italy and play overseas and get injured. And so when I, get, when I got injured, I came back to the U.S., had surgery. And during the off season, you know, that time when I wasn't playing and getting ready for the next season, I pretty much was like, what am I going to do? Because everyone focuses so much on the physical rehab, but no one really focuses on the mental rehab that happens with athletes. So for me, I was like, okay, I can only do how many quad raises and how many toe touches and stretches and ice baths. What am I going to do? So I started thinking, I was like, okay, um, any opportunity that I have, I'm going to become a yes woman. So I worked for the Pac-12 networks. Um, they're like, oh, Chanae, while you're here in the States getting ready for your next WNBA season, would you be willing to go and speak here? So I started just doing a lot of different things in media um, because I wanted to not only financially support myself, but at the same time, just figure out what's out there. It's cool. i got a voice. i got a platform, and I love women's basketball. So I did a lot of women's basketball work. Now, again, ball is life. Go back two years later after my injury. Hoop, great. Then I go play overseas in China to secure the bag. And then in China, I get injured again. And for me, this was like, whoa. You know, two injuries overseas, playing 24-7 is really hard. 
And I mentioned getting injured. The first injury was a right knee microfracture surgery that I needed. And then the last injury was an Achilles tear that happened in China. So like, imagine I was by myself in China on the road. Um, something happened. I was actually, you know, it happened and it, it, I didn't feel any pain. But within a day and a half, because of the relationships I built with the doctors for my first injury, within a day and a half, I was back in the U.S. healed and on my road back to recovery. So, like, my mom, you know, I got doctors on speed dial. My mom, I've got some really tiger parents. Um, they got me out of there, and I was fortunate to be rehabbing. So I had another long rehab, you know, um, ahead of myself. So during that time, I'd already built some inroads, doing a lot of different things, just with media and just trying to showcase, you know, female athletes and our voices that, you know, it's hilarious. So I'm in Connecticut, you know, as a Connecticut Sun member. And obviously in the, the only other big sports, you know, media type of thing, or the only sports, the king of sports is ESPN in Connecticut, obviously. Um, so throughout this time, I had been fostering relationships with them. So about two years previous from my, from my latest injury, um, when I was rehabbing from the first one, I got a call. And it's from Lisa Stokes, who's still like my fairy godmother, I call, but I, she doesn't like the age difference, so fairy god sister. And so they said, Shanae, it's a summer hiatus period for ESPN. We're looking for females. You know, we're trying to test them out on TV. Would you be interested in coming and, you know, doing a couple shows for us? So I was supporting my team. And I was like, sure, whatever. What, sign me up. I wasn't really watching that much ESPN then because it's all like live games for me. The first show I did was First Take as a guest co-host and His and Hers as a guest co-host back-to-back days. And those are some beats. You know, if you don't go into, you know, if you don't study media broadcasting and you're on there as a co-host. So to me, it was a lot about sinking or swimming. So I went in there, I had fun, and I guess I treaded water. I wouldn't say I was great or I wasn't horrible, but it was a good experience for me. So um, when, I, when I finally rehabbed from this past year, um, I had done a whole bunch of women's basketball games. I had done a lot of, um, you know, just collegiate sports uh, events a lot of female topics working for ESPN and fortuitously um, ESPN has a huge international arm and they just launched sports center Africa. And so that's broadcasting sports center to millions of viewers throughout Africa. Well, being African in Connecticut, you sort of stick out like a sore thumb, right? You know what I'm saying? So, um, <laughs> so it's funny. The, the people that had built relationships over the years with at ESPN during my rehab uh, they were like, Sinead, you know, why don't you come in and get interviewed as an athlete for Sports Center Africa? So I go in there and I get interviewed and it's fun. I get on a flight back to California to work, I think it's probably for the Pac-12 Networks. And the boss of International, Sean Riley, amazing dude, calls my agent and is like, Sinead, will she be able to come back and like just shadow the show? So I went back and I was like, sure, whatever, cool experience, learning. Went and shadowed the show. After I shadowed the show, they're like, can you read from a prompter, a teleprompter? Tried it out. Can you read a sports highlight? I had no clue what a shot sheet is. Didn't know if it goes up, down, left, right. Just gave it a whirl. I felt like a hot mess when I did that. I watched the tape back. I was like, oh, things sort of added up. It was pretty cool. Next thing you know, they offered me a position um, to anchor Sports Center Africa, which was really cool because it's out of like an, a typical athlete, you know, you know, a skill set normally. Usually we come in as analysts. This would be a whole different side of media that not many people do. So, I guess from those injury experiences and constantly doing random things and being a guest woman and exploring, you know, the opportunities that were in my backyard as a Connecticut Sun member in the WNBA, this whole pathway just sort of opened up. Um, so I got in the door with ESPN through Sports Center Africa as a full-time employee. Um, I learned how to anchor Sports Center. I'm learning a lot about different sports. 
And then through there, I was in-house and they said, whoa, big news broke on LeBron James. Shanae, can you come on our, we call it domestic, which is a sports center we all watch every day and talk about the NBA. So I was like, sure, because this is my passion. I love ball, I love hoop. And then from there, um, I became more of a regular on sports center, a regular on the, you know, when I'm available, not in season, on the jump and other programs, you know, Sports Nation RIP. Um, and then that's just sort of what happened. So I always tell people, I just stuck to what I was passionate about, sharing my voice, letting people know what it's like to be a female athlete. And then obviously, you know, being African and, and proud of being Nigerian American. And, and now I, I serve as, you know, an anchor for Sports Center Africa, which is cool, an analyst for the NBA, all things that I love to do. So it was just, it's a long time running, but if I didn't get pushed when I was at Stanford, I don't know, you know, where I'd be right now. That's good. I real I appreciate um I appreciate that detailed answer because that can lead to a lot of places. First of all, Stanford's amazing in that you turn left, it's Condoleezza Rice. You turn right, it's Chelsea Clinton. You turn left, it's Tiger Woods. You turn right, it's Andrew Luck. It's a ridiculous and they're, they're and and trust me, the, those are not even close to the smartest people on campus. The smartest people on campus are oh, yeah. probably in some computer lab who's going to be you know building the next Facebook. The smartest people on campus are the dropouts. They drop out because they've got something big going. <laughs> You're right. It's well said, Janae. You're right. So uh, most, I think most of the people listening to this podcast will have no idea what SportsCenter Africa is because, like you said, most of their um, ESPN viewing is through domestic ESPN, ESPN2, or ESPN Plus, or ESPN.com. So I want to ask you a couple questions about that. One, where do they tape it? And I imagine somewhere in Bristol. And is the show set up the same way traditional SportsCenter is, like uh, two hosts – um, introducing highlights, maybe occasionally interviewing other analysts or athletes. How does what does Sports Center Africa look like for those of us who have never seen it? It's absolutely the exact same as what you see on Sports Center with Sage and Kevin. Um, so it's me and Phil Murphy for Sports Center Africa. We have a Sports Center for the Caribbean. We have one for Australia. We have one for the Philippines. So it's, uh, a lot of the anchors can do double duty. But it's, it's right in Bristol. We just go into a little bit of a smaller studio and we follow the exact same format um, because internationally, sports is booming. Like for so long, we think that the only sport that happens outside of the U.S. is probably football, which is, you know, our soccer. But no, basketball is growing. There's so many sports. NFL is growing worldwide with media because of social media. It's funny at ESPN, we talk about our international sector. We're a sector at ESPN that is like one of the few that has all areas of positive profit and growth because the world wants more sports content because they can see what's happening on, um, you know, the social media. Now ESPN is like doing a great job of selling the rights to these things for everyone to see and partnering with local affiliates in different countries. So yeah, we, we set up, we're in Bristol, just like, you know, the main sports center anchors. And we do the show just the same, probably just a little bit shorter, not hours. It could be up to 30 minutes. It could be 15 minutes. But they're exactly mirror shows. Just sometimes, like for Caribbean, we're talking cricket sometimes. Um, for Africa, we focus on the Premier League and the Champions League and all that stuff. We add in those flavors. But the cool thing is that the NFL and the NBA is the universal sports language right now for the world. Janae, for people who have never done it or may never do it, what, what did you find is the most uh, either difficult or surreal part of reading a teleprompter into a camera? <laughs> Man, it's so funny because you think it's easy, but it's really not. You forget about like how often your eyes get glazed over and like reading onto a glass or a camera just is not like reading on paper. Reading on paper is pretty stable. 
glass or camera that's moving. And granted, you're in a studio with different lights. And sometimes that prompter might go out. So you have to ad lib or someone may forget to, you know, move it. So it's, it seems very easy, but it's very actually, uh, it's challenging. Like I find little things, like when I wear my glasses, it's a little bit harder because it's like a different lens hitting another glass. But when I wear my contacts, it's a little bit easier. But, you know, sometimes I got to go for my looks with my glasses sometimes, you know what I'm saying? So I got to push through. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not so easy. It's one thing that I'm still working at. But the cool thing is that, like, I would say that if you can work with the least amount of teleprompter, that's the best thing in the TV biz. And that's the thing I'm challenging myself to do. Okay, don't use the teleprompter as a crutch. Know the story yourself. So that you're looking and you're just talking and then you're referencing the teleprompter, you're not reading verbatim. One of the things, obviously, it's an advantage and you've you've been really smart about it, that you have some name recognition, you play for the Connecticut Sun, so you have that geographic connection to ESPN, and you've um, you've used those opportunities to get a really, you know, interesting job at ESPN while you're playing professional basketball. That's a long prelude to ask you, are there any negatives that you've had to overcome? In that, I mean, because you're a basketball player, do you ever have to sort of fight the perception that when you're on air, the only thing that you're an expert in is basketball? Because you're choosing a very different path by being an anchor and doing some stuff that traditional athletes have not done on television. And I wonder if at all you've had to face that or overcome that, at least in your early parts of your career. A hundred percent. And I think I always just tell people that a lot of that doubt is self-doubt because producers tend to understand the long game. But for us, you know, um, especially female athletes, and I would say as a WNBA player, especially where we are in our league right now, 22 years, you know, in, never folded. And it's a really pivotal time for us, you know, moving forward about bettering, bettering our circumstances for the future, right? It's very similar because I feel like we feel like we should be grateful to even have a seat at the table, not knowing that, WNBA players or women that actually know sports deserve a seat at the table. So it's like removing that self-doubt that should I be here talking about the NBA? That was my number one thing. When I got my first assignment to go on SportsCenter and talk about, you know, what's happening with hoops, I remember I was like so, I was so nervous. I was scared. I was like, man, will people question my knowledge? And it's funny. I would talk to Steven Jackson. And he's like, man, you know more hoops than the dudes I play with. Nine times. I was like, okay, Steve, calm down. <laughs> a sec. But like, you know, I got my confidence from other people understanding, understanding that like we have just the same level of, of knowledge. Just because a lot of players play in the NBA and they're analysts doesn't mean that WNBA players don't know the game. We actually might know it a little bit better because we have to play with all the nooks and crannies and fundamentals, right? So for me, it was a lot about removing that self-doubt about, okay, do I, like, am I qualified? And I think as women, we do that, we tend to post that question on ourselves just because we're not used to being there, right? So, um, yeah, there was a lot of doubt for me. There was a lot of, um, you know, I was worried. I was like, okay, how will people perceive me? And um, the cool thing is I think right now we're in a point in society where we have a lot of people calling people out on ignorance, right? So if I go and I am prepared and I bring my best foot forward and I bring my little perspective and I have fun, I feel great about it. Now, no matter what, people might question that I'm a woman talking about the the NBA. I'm over that now, you know, because I've realized that, hey, I've done my homework and I know that people do it with less, right? So um, to me, and I love it. I love it because, you know, if I do my job, I'm not only just making a sports fan, I'm hopefully making a WNBA fan. I'm making a person that will advocate for 
for female athletes because they just see me up there and they may not know my name because, you know, I got an African name, Chinenga, Wumike. They're like, oh, who's this? But then when they do find out, oh, she's a WNBA player, oh, she went to Stanford, oh, she's got a family that, you know, hoops, like she's been doing this, she's a part of the Connecticut Sun, then I'm making fans and that's what I love, you know? So it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. But it starts with removing that self-doubt that, that we, you know, as women per se, that are speaking on a, on a, a men's sport, like can't or shouldn't or, you know, are less qualified. We definitely are qualified or even overqualified because we finally got there and people actually see, um, you know, our hard work come to fruition. So it was an early stage, man. I was telling you, I go up on sports and I'd be a little shook, but I came prepared. I had a lot of great, you know, team members that helped me along the way to say, hey, Jeanette, you're doing a great job. So it's tough being so young and not knowing what's happening, not being like a, a, a true broadcast journalist, but the path is, is really is really authentic to me, and I, I don't take it for granted. Yeah, I don't know who said this, but um, it, I th- it, made, it might have been somebody like Scott Van Pelt, but said, said something to the effect of the key to TV is once you don't let the television control you, you can control the television, meaning that once you sort of get out of your head and don't worry about the self-doubts, don't worry about how you look on TV, don't worry about what the presentation is, and if your content's good, the viewers know. So I, I know what you're sort of saying in terms of Absolutely. Um, always having self-doubt. And, and people even much older than you, I think, have that as well. I wanted to ask you, because you're in a very unique position, you as a basketball player were always, I think, very media-friendly. I interviewed you, uh, not that you remember, a couple times in group settings. And again, I think most women basketball players who are at your level, I, I'm not sure I know of I don't think I know of one who I would not consider incredibly media-friendly and providing access. I do wonder, though, Cheney, given that you're in this very interesting position, now that you are working professionally as a broadcaster in addition to playing, do you has that changed your interactions at all with the media? Or I almost wonder when someone is asking you a question, do you not only answer the question, but are you thinking to yourself, is this a good question? Is this... Is this a way I would ask the question? I just I wonder now does your dynamic with the media change because you're because you have a, you also have a paid job now as a media member? Oh, 100%. I have so much more sympathy. You know, so <laughs> before, you know, you you hear questions you're like, "Why are you asking that question? Where is this coming from?" And then you realize that it's a job. And it's the job of the media to ask tough questions. And sometimes you're like, well, why wouldn't they just not? They know that I don't want to hear that question. Why wouldn't they not just ask me that question? They know I don't want to hear it. Well, it's because it's their job. So it's hard. And then, you know, the hardest part for me is now talking about the NBA primarily um, and, and being friends with a, a lot of the guys because we grew up together, you know, AAU, McDonald's games, all, all that sort Um having to criticize someone, you know, it's hard when you know them and those criticisms come with implications. So now I'm like, Oh, I, I get why it's so difficult because it's your job to be critical, but at the same time, it's your also your job to maintain relationships. And that's a tough line to balance. So yeah, I totally have way more sympathy. You know, sometimes I used to think about the refs. I'm like, come on, refs, every, every foul should be, you know, towards me a good foul, but you realize that you have to play both sides. Right. Um, so way more sympathy for media now. And now I'm like the mediator. So anytime someone has a problem in our like locker room after games, like you won't believe it's like, well, this is actually where he might be coming from. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's, a, that's a, that's a good, good advocate for me. By the way, am I correct that, uh, I feel like I saw this this summer. Were you kicked out of a game this year? And is that the first oh, time gosh. you've been kicked out of a game in the WNBA? I was, I was ejected. I was ejected. Eject, this year, I yes. saw that one, eight, one ejection. <laughs> That was a quick. That was a quick cook the ref gave you. 
Well, you know what happened? What had happened was, see, the thing is, after the fact, they rescinded one of my technicals. So technically, I should have never been ejected. But what had happened was, oh, rough. I, yeah, I got mad, man. I got mad, and apparently, I don't curse. And you know, the, I, they, I argued it too long. I argued my case way too long, like like a true lawyer in me or something like that. And they just said, Janae, you can't be yelling at us that long. I was like, but I didn't curse. I was polite. I was, I was mad. I was having a moment. But the problem is, early in the game, I got called for a technical on a flail, which was eventually rescinded. But I got called for a technical on a flail. I didn't know that the flail meant a technical. I just thought it was like a personal foul or something. And so when I got mad, that was my second technical in the game. So we're in the timeout, and the police officer was like, I have to escort you out. I was like, excuse me, sir? Like, what? I'm in Dallas. My family's here. What are you talking about? And he's like, I have to score you. That was your second tech class. Like, you got to be kidding me. But um, we won the game. It, it'd be different. I'd be, I'd be real mad if we lost. But we won, so I'm happy. <laughs> nice. Um, we, all right, a couple more here. You're, um, I'm curious. This and this will sort of morph into a little bit of um, both some WNBA questions as well as broadcasting. But I wonder, and I, you know, you, Shanae, know full well that whenever the WNBA is talked about on social media. You get a lot of trolls, and you get the mm-hmm. people coming out. Well, I drop in like uh, kitchen memes, or sandwiches. you know, like <laughs> I can, yeah, sandwiches. My my I, my high school team could beat these guys. I beat you one on one, etc. Can you? Um, you're not generally on your Twitter feed saying a lot of provocative things, but so I think you're an interesting t- uh, case study. What is your social media feed like, and how much trolling do you get on a daily, weekly basis? You know what's great? So on my social media feed, everyone that um, knows me or gets to know me, become, you know, is like a diehard, you know, female sports advocate, you know, WNBA fan, or just gets it, right? A true sports fan that understands the bigger picture. So when people, trolls do jump in my mentions, like all my followers just attack and pounce. You know, it's hilarious for me to just sit watching with my popcorn. But um, generally, like little things, for instance, if the NBA account will post something about the WNBA Granted, we are a part of the NBA as a WNBA. Um, immediately, I think it's socially acceptable to a lot of ignorant sports fans to, to rag or to, to hate on our league. It's socially acceptable. It's sort of like if you want to make an icebreaker party joke if you're in your sports fan and you don't understand like the true meaning and the true goals and aspirations of female athletes, it's okay to jump, make a joke about the WNBA. Like, that's the sports culture. That's how it's been for so long, as long as our league has been there. We're trying to defeat that. We're trying to get rid of that, you know? And I think nowadays in society, we are great on calling out injustice throughout society. So when people do hate on the WNBA and social media, more and more now you see people actually speaking up and saying, bro, you're lame. Or like, bro, like, you don't even get this. Like, why are you doing this? Quit wasting your time. You had so much energy to come on a, and comment. Like, why? Just because you think it's going to give you cool points to make a joke about the WNBA? So yeah, these trolls exist, but at the same time, I'm glad that our society is just more active now. Like it's more politically, socially, economically conscious for us to actually call out all these ignorant people that have never been to a game, have not given our league a chance, that are stuck on these preconceived notions about our league without even experiencing it. And it's funny, like, you know what I mean? The, the catch to me is whoever that social media person is typing behind whatever, if you catch us outside, like if you, if you meet us face to face, your energy will be completely different. You know, WNBA players are very, very accessible to fans because we understand we got to pound the pavement. It's a grassroots league. We got to, you know, go and shake everyone's hands and try to get them to the arena. And once you get there, 
you love it. You know, it's a beautiful thing. When, when these social media haters meet us in person, they, they don't keep that same energy. And that's because they understand that, like, you know, you, it, it's great to be a female athlete. You come from a mother. Your mother could have hooped. She could have been a trailblazer. You might have a daughter. Your daughter, would you say that she's, she's six foot three like me? Um, would you not put her in sports because you are still stuck on that ignorant mindset, right? You know, I can go all day on this. <laughs> but yeah, it's in social media. It's just socially acceptable to rag on the WNBA. But I think now we have a lot of people calling it out. And I think WNBA players are sticking true to their own selves, you know, building themselves as brands themselves and letting that help tell the stories of our league as well. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate, there's a lot of WNBA players, uh, people like Monique Curry are really good at this. He'll just throw it back on oh, the yeah. troll. And you are right. Zero, zero Usually speaking. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, and eventually, you know, the troll gets pounded down by more supporters than not. But the fact is, you know, if I'm getting a touch of it when I send out something about the WNBA, I always, I only can imagine what players and others get. So I, I appreciate you giving people just a little bit of um, a little bit of a glimpse into into that. All right, a couple more here. Um, Chine, you're you're young. You're 26, so your your professional career could go certainly another 10 to 15 years. Is broadcasting something that you you think you could be you could see yourself doing 20, 25, 30 years down the line? Do you is this something you think could become? Um, I don't want to say your career after you're playing because it's already your career now. But um, but what about longevity in broadcasting? You think this is ultimately what you want to do for your life's work? I love it. I love it. When people ask me like, what is it like? It's it's tough, you know, playing in season and then turning around and waking up at five a.m. and driving that lonely drive for an hour to Bristol. Right? Um, it's a challenge when your body's sore from playing a game the night before. But um, when I get there and I'm around like the same sports enthusiasts that we have in the arenas at ESPN in Bristol, and then you sit in the seat and like there's a, a whole same adrenaline pumping. You have the same mindset as a player. You want to be prepared. You want to work hard. You want to have fun. You know, you want to show the crowd a little bit of you. It's the same, you know what Kobe says, different animals, same beast. That's broadcasting to me and that's, you know, hooping. So I've loved it and it's been natural for me and I would love to keep using a platform and whether it's broadcasting, but to me, it's all about, you know, just staying authentic. Like I would love to continue to work on TV because it's, to me, it's all about, it's not just about, you know, me being on TV. It's about representation. Representation definitely matters. You know, having a WNBA player talking about the NBA is awesome. Um, Working sports center Africa and the people, the sports fan watching the millions of people throughout Africa watching um, they're g- generally sports fans. There are men, and it's it's a heavy patriarchal, you know, society there. Maybe me being on talking about sports will allow their daughters to to dream and to to try to push to be athletes. And they might think, oh, you know what? It's socially acceptable for girls to play sports. Like to me, it's always been about the bigger picture. So um, I just try to stay true to who I am and pushing pushing those paths that I've sort of created on my own, um, and and not put limits on on anything. But nonetheless, I think I love using my voice and. Um, I, if broadcasting is there, I mean, it's, it's, it's way longer than hooping for sure. Like I can't hoop for 25 years, but I can definitely hopefully, um, you know, share, share my passion and love for the game. So I would love to keep doing it. Janae, you may know this. Um, uh, I don't, maybe I should, but are you, are you the most prominent Nigerian American, uh, female on American sports television, or is there another Nigerian woman working full-time in sports broadcasting or multiple 
Nigerian-American women working full-time in sports broadcasting on air that I'm not aware of? I, I honestly, if I knew, I would probably say. So I guess probably not. Well, that's, what do you think about that? That's kind of amazing, right? In that sense, you're a pioneer. You know, it's funny to hear that <laughs> because, I mean, just um, by nature of not planning anything, it's sort of cool. But at the same time, there's so many different pioneers, you know, especially African, you know, Nigerian-American pioneers. I'm friends with Yvonne Orji, who is a huge part of Insecure, which is a TV show. Um, there's so many, you know, I think, you know, having this half of me, you know, this big cultural part of me that's tied to Africa, it's cool because, you know, before, and this is going back to my nerdy days, but there's something called the brain drain where a lot of people like my parents left Nigeria and they built lives elsewhere. And they're the people that had the resources and the opportunities to really change Nigeria, but they're gone. So a lot of people are gone in, U- in the UK or in the US or even further beyond. And I think those people's children, so like my parents' children, my sisters and I, we still are connected and we're curious about our, you know, our, our heritage. So you see a lot of, you know, young, motivated African kids popping up everywhere now. And their parents are no longer saying, hey, you have to be a doctor or lawyer. They're not saying, oh, well, you can get a scholarship to Stanford by playing basketball. Oh, wow. You can like be a creative in Hollywood and then, you know, fulfill out your dreams, do the same thing. Like there's so many different avenues for success. And we're sharing that success. Hopefully, you know, I go back to Nigeria as much as I can, like twice a year back home. You know, it's cool. It's a nice little full circle. The generations are moving. So when you say trailblazers, it's dope, but there's so many different people doing different things right now by nature of technology and society and education and opportunity that like, I just feel like I'm just talking sports and I just put a ball in a basket. That's cool. But there are people out there like, you know, changing lives, which is neat and, you know, saving lives. So, you know, I think that comes back to Stanford. Like when you're, when your roommate is the guy who invents Snapchat or when you're, you know, the next person is here, you know, creating medical, you know, life-saving technologies, um, you sort of feel like being an athlete, you got to step up your game, right? (laughs) Yeah, I bet. I think people who follow the league know that most of the really good players ultimately end up playing overseas during during the year because that's where the big money can be made um, compared to just playing in the WNBA. If you're just a WNBA player, you're probably going to need outside income or endorsements um, if you're not going to play overseas. Janae, do you see... Is the day coming soon where that won't have to happen, where the best players don't have to go overseas? Because I, I'm not sure I see that day coming anytime soon. I'd like to see it, but I'm not an optimist there. How do you look at it, the idea that we're not going to have to see players like yourself or your sister or Diana Tarazi play abroad for seven months of the year and then you know have to make a decision whether they want to play in the WNBA for much less money and tax their bodies for those couple couple of months. Yeah, the the only way that that day will come soon is if um you know, this after this season, we have the opportunity to make some big changes with our CBA. And I think we have a lot of and I say we because I'm on the executive committee of for the CBA, one of the vice presidents. So we're literally every day talking about it, deliberating about it and I'm planning and preparing for when we have to renegotiate our CBA if we come to that. The only way that we will be able to stay in the U.S. is if there's a major investment made in the WNBA. Almost as major as the NBA is investing in the G League, you know, rebranding it and really investing in it. Seriously, we need that big of an investment in us. Now, it's really interesting because 
I always think about it two ways. Uh, and, and it's about the financial model that is currently happening in the WNBA, which is probably not being sustained properly. You know, maybe two big of arenas, uh, maybe the cost. We don't know what the actual costs are for running a franchise because um, we the, the information is just a little bit ambiguous. Um, so like, we might have to redo that entire financial model so that we can build more sustainable profits for each team. Or we need to look for an investment, whether it's within the NBA, where they can actually, like, the fact that the NBA could spend $1 million and double a whole team's salary, to me, seems so easy to do, right? $12 million will double everyone in the WNBA salary. That's the price of one player that's a marginal player in the NBA, you know, his salary. You can double every WNBA player's salary if you just give us an investment of maybe $12 million. Like, those are little things that we're, we're evaluating. That's one player on one team, you know? Um, so we're trying to figure out, do we need a sustainable model? Do we need a greater investment from the NBA? There's so many different questions, but I, I, I genuinely believe that like at this point, if you're going to try to have a league, the fundamental question and issue that we have is why is our value greater overseas than it is in the U S where we're born and raised and play this game and, and learn this game and fell in love with it. Right. Why is our value greater over there than it is here? What is missing from overseas that we can bring here financially? You know, maybe the the organizations are run differently. Maybe it's more of a charity. Fine. Okay. Why can't we find people that can give like they do in Russia, in Poland, in China, in Turkey? You know, we're going to all these corners of the world that could sometimes be in political crisis situations, but we're doing that for our financial security. So like going into these next two year negotiations, it's going to be really, really key because um, I was at the WNBA All-Star meeting and people like Candace Parker and Diana Taurasi pretty much were like, we're fed up, you know, we deserve more. It's not like we're ungrateful. We care about this league. It's been 22 years strong. But to move forward, we want to be here. We don't want to have to leave. Give us a reason to stay. We're giving you our heart, our mind, our souls, right? Me, I've had two major injuries and I'm fighting. I'm staying in this league. Give us a reason to stay. We will work for you. We will go above and beyond. We're going above and beyond now. But right now we're realizing, hey, Time is money. And the only time we're here at home in the U.S., we're playing WNBA. We're not even home. So give it, you know, make it our worth. Like meet us halfway. Invest in us because that's the only way you, you grow as a business. You have a great product. You need people to help invest in it. We're 22 years young. Like, you know, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very tricky situation. But at the same time, we feel like, like, and I always bring up this issue. Why is it that the WNBA sponsors, are the NBA sponsors and they're exactly mirrored. We're a whole different league with a different demographic. We're women. Where are women sponsors? Where's our little, you know, we should have a weed sponsor or a, you know, lotion sponsor. Who knows? Like, you know, we have a whole different um, demographic. Where are those people that are willing to invest in us? Like, I think we just have to keep pushing those, those boundaries, pushing those relationships and really try to create this financial model that will make this sustainable forever. We're 22 years in, like, we want it to go forever like the NBA is and be super profitable. So it's a tough situation. It's really tough, but I think we will make some serious progress this coming year for sure. Everyone's putting pressure on us. I appreciate you answering that. Cheney Agumake is a all-star forward for the Connecticut Sun in the playoffs, by the way. We'll be watching her uh, and her team very closely in what has been an amazing WNBA season. Um, and she is also, for the purposes of this podcast – a um, commentator on ESPN working on multiple platforms and will be working for that company now for the uh, 
the future and most likely years to come. And as you heard on this podcast, uh, pretty interesting and amazing journey from starting at Stanford, doing some work for the Pac-12 network, and then heading to Sports Center, being part of Sports Center, Sports Center Africa, and now getting some airtime on the get-ups and all the stuff on domestic. So, Chine, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this, and uh, I think the people who listen to this podcast, obviously, who are very heavy into the sports media, will be following your career now in a different way. Thanks so much for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. My pleasure. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to um, Adam Schefter and Chine Ogumake for two really interesting conversations. The Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast you can get on Apple Podcasts, previous podcasts, that's easy for me to say. Leave that in, Lou. Don't cut that. Previous podcasts include John Smoltz, Rebecca Lowe, Brett McMurphy, Frank Isolan, Clifton Brown, and then you can go down the list from Matt Burke to Carissa Thompson, Joe Tessitore, Doris Burke, etc. Uh, we appreciate uh, you subscribing and certainly appreciate you giving a review. The re- reviews have been great, so I can't thank you enough. That's essentially how this podcast continues. For my producer, Lou Pellegrino, For Cadence 13, this is Richard Deitch. I'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.